Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak, and I'm here with Wolfgang Lutz, uh, coming from Costa Rica. And how are you doing down there? Thank you. I'm visiting here just for one week for a research project. Uh, usually I'm based in Vienna at the YASA, the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. Uh, but we are doing projects all over the world trying to understand the interaction between the human population and the natural environment. So we do a lot of work on population climate change. Uh, here, Costa Rica is a, a biodiversity hotspot. So that brings me here to Costa Rica to better understand how humans affect biodiversity and biodiversity affect humans. Well, that's a great introduction. Thank you. And, uh, and your background is you're a demographer. Um, what's demography? Well, demography is defined as the uh, scientific study of changing population size and structures. And I emphasize structures in the plural uh, because uh, typically what people think of uh, demographic change is change in the size and the age structure. This is, of course, very important. Uh, but the age structure is not the only demographic structure that we are studying. There are other structures, uh, such as place of residence, uh, where you live, and, and then importantly, also the highest educational attainment and labor force participation. So these are all uh, characteristics of people as they usually collected in the demographics section of a survey when you're asked like to give some information about your person. These are the questions that they are there. And in demography, we try to model and understand how the composition of the population with respect to people uh, uh, with these specific characteristics uh, changes over time. Now, on the face of it, it sounds like, I, I, at first glance, I would think it might not be that hard. But then when I get into it, it's it must be incredibly complex because you're overlapping with culture and uh, birth rates and diseases and pandemics and uh, and these things change all over the world and then there's uh, migration. Is it incredibly complex? Is it wonderfully complex? Well, it's, uh, after all, it's, it's it's fairly straightforward uh, uh, because the uh, like the size of a population uh, can only change uh, on a global level by two factors: it's the birth and it's the death. And, and then if you look at the sort of limited populations, such as national populations or populations of a city, uh, migration is the third factor. So essentially, we only have these three factors uh, impacting on the size of the population. Uh, if we also want to look at the structure of the population, let's say by a level of education, then in addition, we need to know like how many people move from no education to primary, from primary to secondary, and so on. Uh, these transition rates, or if we also stratify by, let's say, labor force participation, we need to know how many people enter the labor force and, and drop out of the labor force. But this is all fairly straightforward. We have good statistical data on this. This is all being registered by the census bureaus or vital registration systems. And, and also in many of the, the surveys, we have a good individual level uh, information on that. So it's it's less new research and more gathering information that other countries that the the countries gather. It's, it's correct. I mean, the information is uh, particularly for the uh, uh, the global north. Uh, most countries do have good statistical population registration systems. It's a challenge in Africa, uh, where not every birth is registered and not every death is registered. So there is a lot of estimation. Uh, to be involved, and then we have sort of sample surveys, and from that we have to can infer what would be the, the population level, uh, mortality and fertility. Uh, uh, but for the industrialized countries, we do have a, a lot of information. The way is how to meaningfully uh, combine the information and how to uh, process it and, and, and what models to apply and what interpretation to give these models. And then all the other factors that you mentioned, like culture or, or whatever, or economic conditions, uh, they really is only matter for demography as far as they influence the birth rates or influence the death rates or the migration rates. Now, I'm sure you've answered these questions many times before, but I hear a passion in your voice. Is this, I mean, I, I think a lot of people depend on the information that you provide. And uh, is, it, is it really something... That you, do I hear right that it's something you love, that it's something you really sink your teeth into? Yeah, actually, I was uh, drawn uh, as a, already a high school student at the age of 16. I was uh, reading in 72 when the Limits to Growth came out by the Club of Rome. I, I read this from the first to the last page. 
uh-huh. um, without stopping. And I felt that this is really the big questions of humanity. And, and that's what I want to focus on. And then I went on to study statistics and uh, in, in a way uh, decided to focus on the, the statistics or the mathematics of people, which is demography rather than on energy or biodiversity or or atmospheric research or other things that matter as well for understanding the sustainable development. But I was in particular interested in the, in the human side of this. And so the quantitative analysis of how societies change, that is demography. Oh, and now I have to digress for a second, because when you're talking about your education, you went to Penn. I think you in our emails, you, you lived a couple blocks away from where I grew up. That's right. I lived with an American family, a, a host family on Visahicken Avenue, 6601 Visahicken. They were very generous. They, they had already invited, actually, my mother right after the war when she was a, just graduated from high school. She was one of the first German exchange students uh, coming to the U.S. And uh, so she was already hosted by that family in Philadelphia. And so the, the family tradition picked up. And when I went to study in Penn, and my wife came along. We, we both lived with the same family there. Yeah, and uh, for those who watched my TEDx talk on my sledding hill, it was very close to there. And actually, Manarius is um, a neighborhood that was deliberately integrated very early. And is uh, I wonder if that had something to do with your being there. Uh, well, I don't know too much about this neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> okay, so back to, yeah, what, what led me to contact you is that I've seen, actually, the... I see different projections about uh, human population, and the two big ones that I see are limits to growth, which had many different um, simulations, many of which haven't come to fruition, but some of them show a collapse. And then there are the UN projections, and I'm not sure what to... um, I mean, I, I've gone into the details of, of where they come from. I also read Limits to Growth cover to cover, and I couldn't. Yeah. I, I was like reading and thinking, like, this is how I would analyze the situation. And the UN projections show a leveling off, something like 8 or 10 billion. And how do I make sense of which to, one of them makes me comfortable, and one of them makes me very concerned? Mm-hmm. Well, there are many aspects of it. Let's first. Uh... Talk about the institutions, uh, who is doing global level population projections. Of course, most of the population projections are for individual countries produced by the, the national statistical agencies or in the U.S., the Census Bureau. Uh, they provide projections and they have long traditions and uh, most of them use pretty similar methods. The U.N. has been the first institution uh, to uh, produce consistent uh, sets of projections for all countries in the world. They started right after the World War II in uh, 1948. The first global population projections were produced by the UN, and uh, and and they have a sort of a, a very consistent pattern every two years. They have a new update. Uh, they have a big group, the, the population division, sitting in New York, where all the countries uh, submit their data, and they make sure the data are harmonized. They are measuring the same thing in different parts of the world. And, and they still up to today uh, give the best assessment of what uh, are the, uh, the statistical situations up to today, uh, up to this date. So they have the historical uh, information, uh, partly estimated, partly reconstructed, if it is not based on empirical data. And they give you sort of the, the most recent assessment of where we stand. Mm-hmm. And nobody challenges. I mean, this. everybody, also our own projections use for the baseline data, the UN projections, because being the UN, they have also access to the national statistical offices and they give them, really, they are obliged to give them the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, the question next comes like, uh, what do you do in terms of projections, looking into the future? And there are essentially two big questions that different agencies uh, address in a different way. The one is uh, which variables you want to project into the future. Like until uh, the, the middle of the last century, what people mostly did is just projecting population size. So you assume a growth rate, you have a total stock of population, and then you assume it's going to grow for 1% per year or 2% per year. And that is the basis for your projections. And that's what, the, for instance, biologists do still these days uh, when they do uh, animal demography, when they project uh, uh, yeah, animal populations, and so it's. But it's the most simple, where you have an exponential growth with a uh, assumed uh, growth rate. 
Now, in the human population, uh, it has become clear and already in the 1920s and 30s when the birth rates started to fall. Or then in Europe, we really had sort of big cuts into the age pyramid by World War I and then later World War II. So the age pyramid has become very irregular. Therefore, people understood, yes, the age structure matters greatly. Uh, it matters even if uh, you have, let's say, an assumed fertility rate of two children per woman. Uh, it matters greatly how, how big the cohort of young women is that enters the reproductive ages. So we really have to look at the, the number of births. Critically, also depends on the age structure and not only on the fertility rate per woman. So since then, uh, this is what we call the cohort component method. This is looking at populations by age and sex. That has become the, the standard uh, way of dealing with it. But of course, the population uh, is uh, differentiated, it's heterogeneous, as we say, with a technical term, uh, by more than just the, the age structure and, and the gender dimension. Uh, people within the same age cohort, uh, some of them behave very differently than others. And uh, uh, so we came to the conclusion that the educational attainment level is clearly the most important a source of population heterogeneity next to age and sex. So in other words, uh, that uh, people, uh, women with a higher education, particularly in developing countries, they behave very differently. First of all, they have much lower child mortality. They know much better how to look after their children. They do the right things. They get better access to health care. They live longer themselves, and they tend to have lower fertility rates, both because they have a lower desired family size, so they, they don't want five, six, seven children, they only want one, two, or three, and because they then can afford a better life for them, and they find better means uh, to actually achieve this desired family size. So education with respect to fertility and to mortality really is a key uh, differentiating, differentiating factor. So that's why we at uh, YASA, this is this International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, which was established exactly 50 years ago in 1972. Incidentally, the same year the club yeah. published the limits to growth. And actually, the, the YASA was really becoming the center of uh, global metal modeling. Like uh, Daniela Meadows was the key, the lead author of the limits to growth, was frequently at YASA and he was uh, heading our YASA group on um, population and uh, and uh, modeling and there. So she had really a, a great impact. Uh, what differentiates the Club of Rome model to this uh, UN model or this cohort component model is that uh, the uh, the Club of Rome is a fully systems dynamic model. It means there's a feedback. Yeah. Sort of the, the assumed population trend together with natural resources and, and, and food availability then uh, feeds back on the economy and other issues, and these feed back on human fertility and mortality. So there is sort of a closed uh, circle, and there are the feedbacks mechanisms in, in systems analysis. That's what, what YASA is uh, there to do, and we are also working on a new systems model. The problem is we know very, very little about how these feedback mechanisms actually work. So for that reason, the conventional population projections including the UN or most of the national ones, as well as our own scenarios by age, sex, and level of education. They um, make the assumptions of the future fertility, mortality, and migration trends or fast education trends in addition, uh, independent of what we think is, is happening to climate change or the economy and so on. We just take a best guess uh, because we believe the, the changes in the outside world are even less certain uh, than the changes in, in demography, uh, because these things uh, like death rates or birth rates, they don't jump overnight. They tend to show relatively moderate, uh, smooth changes, although there are some exceptions from this that we can discuss. So that's essentially the, the question of which component, what do you project? And that is where, for instance, our uh, YASA projections are also known as the Wittgenstein Center projections, because the Wittgenstein Center is a collaboration between the YASA population program with the uh, Vienna Institute of Demography. That is a pretty big institute by the Austrian Academy of Sciences that I also have been heading for 20 years and uh, the Department of Demography of the University of Vienna. So these three groups in the Vienna area work together under the name Wittgenstein Center 
which is based on the highest Austrian science prize, the Wittgenstein Prize, which is named under, after the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. And I was lucky to win that prize in uh, 2010 as the first social scientist. And uh, the money that comes along with it, I used to sort of bring these uh, three institutions in the Vienna area together and strengthen the, the global visibility. So um, um, this is the first question is uh, what do you project? And the second is uh, how do you deal with uncertainty? Uh, that's a very complex issue, but maybe we should still first, uh, if you have any questions, I was yeah, yeah. I much on the first one. You said a lot there, so I'm not sure if I, if I followed at all. I mean, the big, what I took away, the big difference is that limits to growth is fundamentally has a lot of feedback mechanisms in it between population and economy, pollution levels, things like that. Yeah. And Yasa has, I, I wasn't clear, it, it doesn't have those or it simplifies those? The limits to growth has a rather simplistic uh, population model. Mm -hmm. They only have sort of, they don't have an age structure in there. Uh, they only have sort of a birth rate and a death rate, a so-called crude birth rate and death rate, which is how many birth and death per thousand there are. Um, so in on the demographic side, it's, uh, much less sophisticated, less differentiated than the UN or or our projections. But the sort of the value added is that they are attempting to model the feedbacks from uh, economic growth, uh, uh, from uh, environmental resources, food security. But for instance, they don't have education explicitly in their model, which uh, we believe is really a key driver for many of these things. And they, and so the, that's for, for this reason, because it's so simplistic on the demographic side, the demographic research community really hasn't taken this model very serious. Uh, they uh, even now the, the most recent updates that they have made, uh, they are they are not they are just disregarded as being too simplistic exercises by most of our demography colleagues. So how do the demographer? How do your demographer colleagues? put in feedback on the levels uh, I mean because they've the demography may be simplified but the level of inter of feedback is is more sophisticated or am I missing uh yes uh, the um the problem is we know very very little about this feedback let me tell you like the uh, that's how the UN has done it in the past and recently they have a new model as sort of a, a probabilistic uh, extrapolation model but in the past, it was largely sort of expert-based assumptions on fertility and mortality. And at Yasa, we also had done this. We had published in uh, 2014 a really massive 1,000-page volume with Oxford University Press, where we had uh, reporting on a survey among more than 500 uh, demographers worldwide, where they were asked to give the arguments, why would you think that uh, fertility in the future would be higher or lower, and what are the drivers behind this? So we tried to sort of collect the, the accumulated knowledge by the scientific research community in the field of demography worldwide. And then uh, we had different uh, uh, groups of what we call meta-experts that were then uh, translating uh, these, these collected uh, argument assessments and assumptions into overall assumptions. Actually, one on mortality we, we had here in, in Costa Rica at the uh, Central American Population Research Institute, and we had one in, in Nepal on high fertility, we had one in South Africa on high mortality. So we really had these all over the world. And, and so that's translating this uh, expert argument and opinions of more than 500 uh, experts into uh, assumptions about the, the, like, the most likely future trend and then what are sort of high and low variants, assuming that, I mean, they span roughly 80% uh, of what the future path can uh, offer as in terms of uncertainty. And so we are already deeply now into this question of uncertainty, uh, sort of producing different scenarios. We really don't know what's the future of mortality in Africa. AIDS uh, pandemic, for instance, uh, made all the uh, earlier projections of ever-increasing life expectancy in Africa uh, completely showed them to be wrong because uh, life expectancy in some countries declined by 10 years or more. And then, but the recovery there was also faster than demographers had assumed, or the models, most of them had assumed, because there was the, uh, the, the treatment became available more easily. And, uh, and now actually Africa is pretty much back on an increasing trajectory 
in life expectancy. Uh, a very important question for the future of the, the world population is how fast is fertility declining in different parts of Africa? And there also have been periods after 2000 where there sort of seemed to be a stall in the fertility decline. And now in the meantime, it has resumed and it's declining in most countries at a relatively high speed. Uh, but the, uh, there are different views of what was, was the reason, what is behind this uh, stalled fertility. And uh, that also, of course, impacts on what we assume for the longer term future. So we really try to sort of do, uh, collect the, the best knowledge available out there in the scientific community and translate it into different scenarios. When, so there's feedback. I mean, you talked about death rate affected by pandemics, it diseases. I also think of things like um, uh, environmental things like uh, fish, the, the amount of fish in the ocean or aquifers being depleted or rivers running dry. And those things seem like they could affect a lot of the, the death rate, like suddenly. But I, I'm sure you look at those things. Well, we, we don't know that's the problem. I mean, first of all, we don't know when the, a new pandemic comes up. We don't know when there will be a, exactly a tipping point in, in fishing. And uh, particularly with respect to uh, the food security, that um, uh, human population, particularly more educated human populations, have shown to be uh, remarkably resilient and adaptive. Uh, they uh, find uh, different sources uh, of food supply, and uh, uh, particularly those who are not uh, subsistence farmers based uh, really on rain-fed agriculture uh, in Africa without fertilizers, without irrigation. They are very vulnerable to droughts or whatever. There are extreme events. But uh, somewhat more developed uh, countries, even in India already, where the Green Revolution has introduced some of these technological advances in agriculture. Um, yeah, there, there is quite some resilience uh, to uh, people do not immediately starve uh, if there is uh, a problem with food supply. Uh, so this is very hard to anticipate precisely. So that's why uh, in population projections, we've um, come to a practice where we sort of assume uh, most likely medium variant and then sort of a range of uncertainty around this. And in some cases, we try to do this probabilistically, like we have sort of a more probabilistic 95% uh, or 60% or whatever confidence interval. Uh, but I think the more meaningful uh, that is now done by, by most statistical agencies and also uh, our scenarios, the so-called shared socioeconomic pathways that are now widely used in the climate change community, they are based on alternative scenarios that underlie different storylines. So that's actually where the feedback comes in. Like if we have a, a stalled development storyline uh, where people will be less empowered uh, to, to cope uh, with, let's say, uh, health shocks, new pandemics, or uh, negative implications of climate change, uh, then we assume higher uh, death rates and uh, higher international migration rates uh, under these uh, not-so-favorable scenarios, as uh, contrasted to the rapid social development scenario where we have a high improvement in the level of education and much higher resilience to these kinds of disasters. So it sounds to me like there's a there's a big assumption that there may be big events, but the population may be resilient and figure out ways around them. So an aquifer may run dry, uh, but then people will, people figure out ways of new irrigation or desalination or something like that. Yeah, well, it's not really an assumption. Well, it's true in the, in the medium variant. Uh, we'll, we'll, of course, we have some assumptions about a resilient path of improving life expectancy, uh, at least uh, somewhat moderate increases. And and then we play around, like we try to incorporate these very hardly, very difficult to predict uh, other events. Like, who knows, there may be a nuclear war tomorrow and uh, there may be other things. Yeah, uh, You cannot rule it out, uh, but uh, you can sort of try to draw the range of uncertainty uh, through some scenarios that make more extreme assumptions. And uh, that would be capturing the effects of some of these more extreme events. So it's, I mean, I guess I feel, I, I read reports that say that people try to imagine what the sustaining, what the carrying capacity of, the, of Earth would be. Yeah. 
and huge variation in these numbers, as as you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, John Cohen produced a very nice book collecting all these estimates that really range from a, a few million people uh, to trillion people, depending on what technology. You and use. I guess, do you do you have any opinion on that? On that, or is that outside your scope of? I think it's an irrelevant question because we are never going to test this uh, really. Uh, I think the uh, it has pretty much consensus uh, that the world population is, is growth rate is, is flattening and will level off somewhere a little above or a little below uh, 10 billion people. And, and then uh, during the 22nd century, actually maybe uh, declining. So this peak will likely be around 2070, 2080 sometime. At this, uh, and we are so sure because this demographic uh, transition, sort of the, the decline of fertility following the decline of mortality, uh, is such a consistent pattern happening everywhere. I mean, let me give an example. I just yesterday heard the newest fertility data here in Costa Rica. After all, Costa Rica is a fairly poor developing country still. Uh, the fertility level, you know, have like two children or 2.1 is what you need for replacing society at the national level last year was 1.3 that's what in europe we already called the lowest low fertility and then if you take out the nicaraguan refugees who tend to have higher fertility so the the national costa rican population only has 1.1 which is about half of replacement level still a fairly poor society where women are rather well educated and the, the health system is good and reproductive health is Quite okay. But this is amazing. So one country after the other is going to this very low fertility. And then the spearheaded is this by Korea, who is now at 0.7 children per woman. It's sort of only one third of the replacement level. And there are no signs it will increase very rapidly. So in the long run, this implies that the world population is really going to shrink. And we've done some very long-range scenarios, assuming like if the whole world by the end of this century converges to about 1.5 children per woman, which is the average we have in Europe now already quite stable for several decades, uh, then the world population by 2200 uh, will have declined uh, to, to 3 to 4 billion people, depending on how life expectancy uh, will change, and this is exactly what the, many ecologists call the uh, sustainable world uh, uh, population size. They, they say, mainly like Partidas Gupta or uh, others said that it we really should. That is what is in the long run could be a sustainable world population three to four billion. We may well be there. The question is how to get there. We we go over a peak, so the. I, I'm more concerned about, let's say, the nearer-term future, how we manage this transition, than about the, the longer-term future. So this is not the rosiest picture, but it's not that bad a picture of of if we settle down to three, four billion without... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm picturing... You talk a lot about educating women as one of the main drivers of yeah. lowering fertility. Uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll go in that direction. Um, there's There's... Educating women in general in whatever they want to study. There's also family planning, and I think these are two separate things that are often related. Because I think men get educated. I don't know if men get family planning education. I feel like women get more of that. So are there, are there like three different things here? Well, that's a that's a very important question. But before I answer, let me sort of conclude the earlier one with I, I tried to summarize this in a title. I recently had an uh, editorial in the Royal Statistical. A society's journal uh, that I gave a long title which tried to summarize it says towards a world of two to four billion well educated and therefore healthy and wealthy people who will be able to cope with already unavoidable climate change uh, that is really sort of summarizing in a nutshell the optimistic uh, picture of the world future that I have yes climate change is going to be a major threat but if we are well prepared and if the human capital and education is high enough, we'll be healthier and wealthier and we'll be able to cope with this. Well, okay. So well, let me go back to now. We'll, we'll, I want to table the education part for a second because w- when you say climate change, some people by climate change mean only the rise of temperature, but it could also mean um, deforestation and um, uh, desertification and aquifers and and 
running out of fish and things like that. Is it all those things? Yeah. I mean, uh, this question like land use change and deforestation, they are more sort of drivers of climate change. Uh, so we in climate change, the interaction between population and climate change, we have to dis distinguish between the, the mitigation side, like how can we reduce our impact on the climate? And that is, uh, of course, in the first instance, reducing uh, fossil fuel burning, uh, having fewer CO2 emissions. But as you mentioned, it also has to do with land use change and deforestation or has to do with the, the animals and, and the methane emissions and so on. Uh, but what did the fuel, because uh, the, here we have to have urgent action, and this is, we really want to be carbon neutral over the next uh, two, three decades, uh, if we, there's any chance of uh, meeting the two degree target. Uh, so in that respect, uh, population growth or demographic changes are not that relevant because they are more slowly evolving. The action really needs to happen very soon, and the action needs to happen in in our behavior and in the technologies that we use. Uh, but where demographic trends will may a play a role is the adaptation side. It's the side how will climate change during the next uh, sort of the second half of this century and the following century affect uh, human well-being in different parts of the world. And there are uh, these uh, it's temperature rise, but of course the average temperature rise uh, doesn't tell you too much. Uh, there is much more extreme temperature rises in certain regions than in others. Uh, this, uh, what is really dangerous there are the, the heat waves uh, that sometimes actually kill people right away. The, the human body cannot stand them, uh, particularly if you don't have access to air conditioning. Uh, what is really dangerous is uh, extended droughts or uh, flooding uh, that uh, really uh, destroy the harvests and, and, and uh, are a problem for food security. And in the long run, one of the, the most dangerous issues, I guess, is, is uh, sea level rise. Because we, if we have a few meters of sea level rise, most of our mega cities and developing countries are right at sea level. And uh, so I think we better already today should start relocating these cities uh, to higher territories because some sea level rise uh, is unavoidable. Uh, but these are all... Uh, consequences we are starting to see now. We have this extra dry and extra hot uh, periods, but it's going to be much stronger and much more severe over the coming decades. That's what all the climate models say. And uh, we have to prepare for this. I mean, humans are not helpless. We we can live from the Antarctica research station to the hottest tropics. Look, look at Singapore, which has about the, the hottest climate you can imagine on this planet, yet uh, people all move there and they are thriving there. Everything is air conditioned. So so we can cope with this if we do the right things and have the means to do so. Well, it's, I mean, the, the issue of pollution seems to come up. I mean, if you're going to air condition everywhere, it feels like plastic is, is, in our, is in our bloodstreams, in our food supply. Uh, does that... Yeah, but this may be because we use stupid primitive technologies. We can solar energy-based air pollution, and actually Singapore is, is making some progress there, and many others also do. And we have, um, yeah, we, we can have uh, biodegradable materials instead of the conventional plastic. And so if we would have intelligent solutions for most of these things, really. But we need to be able, we need to be smart enough to do it, educated enough to do it, and, and also willing, there need to be the incentives, the economic incentives to do this. And you also mentioned behavior change, which I connect with cultural change and changing our, I mean, if we just want to grow no matter what, that's, that belief system is going to drive a lot of behavior. And on my part, I've, I've, I've been doing a whole lot of personal experiments to see if, does it improve life or make life worse to have less? And I found that it actually improves my life. And I don't think there's anything special about me here that uh, I think there's a lot of people who consume a lot and their lives would improve if they consume less. Uh, is it, and I guess that's outside of demography, but that's a, a major player in, in, in these feedbacks. Yeah, I mean, there are so many win-win situations, so many behavioral changes uh, that actually uh, are uh, have negative costs. You save money, and uh, you you are healthier as a consequence, and and you feel better, and the environment is benefiting. You ask why yes. are people not <laughs> doing this? And uh, this is is just uh, it's in our brains. It's some blockades we tend to do this what we are used to, 
And that's again another word where we, because I'm really interested in the effect of education. How can we educate the people? And there's also quite some evidence that uh, the uh, the more educated people are faster in for behavioral change. I mean, looked at this with, uh, for instance, uh, moving over from your private car to using public transport. So the more educated people are more easily willing to do this and flexible to do this. There is one problem that, of course, more educated people also tend to uh, have higher incomes uh, because they are more productive. And uh, with higher incomes, uh, you have a higher purchasing power and you you buy more stuff and you also fly around more. And so the the, uh, the ecological footprint uh, of, of more educated people, because of their higher income, uh, can be uh, worse. Uh, but it's not the education that is to blame, but it's the income that is to blame. If you don't like this effect, you can just tax away the additional income and you still have the positive benefits of education, such as better health and uh, greener uh, attitudes and more flexibility in changing your behavior. I'll put as an aside as I, I, one of my big strategies is to work with the biggest, uh, I mean, leaders is, is my way of putting it, who set cultural changes and, and uh, hopefully lead them to value and behave consistently with less and well, less material stuff, but more value and, and meaning and purpose. Yeah. Well, there is one aspect in this uh, where also demographic modeling can help a lot. We have this uh, model, or even I call it a theory of demographic metabolism. Uh, that is a, a term coined by the American demographer Norman Ryder already in the 60s. And um, it says how societies change through intergenerational replacement. I mean, it's, it's fairly common knowledge that young people uh, often behave differently and have different attitudes that the, than the older ones. And many of these uh, attitudes then are pertained uh, throughout their life as they get older. So as this, I mean, education is also a good example. Like in many societies, the elderly had poor, uh, low education, but then there was the education expansion. Take Singapore, Korea as an example. In the, in the 1950s, there was almost no education. And then the, the young ones got better educated. And as these better educated cohorts, age groups, move up the age pyramid, get older, mm-hmm. uh, the less educated elderly die and the younger ones take over. Uh, that is demographic metabolism. That is how societies change. And when there is uh, then a, a higher proportion of these people who are different with respect to education, but this also affects uh, attitudes towards the environment. Or in Europe, we've done some studies about European identity, where the people see themselves as primary, primarily a national citizen or a European. The younger ones uh, have in surveys a much higher prevalence of a European identity. And this identity tends to, tends to be sticky. They keep it throughout their lives. And as they move up the age pyramid, we move to a majority of the population in Europe having a, a European identity uh, rather than a purely national identity. So we can forecast uh, with demographic methods that no sociology can do or whatever, really such fundamental changes in society uh, over decades into the future. All right. So... Let's get to education, but I, I want to wrap up the the projections because it it feels to me. I guess I put a greater weight on these difficult to predict things. That the resilience feels like there have been certain types of problems we've had in the past, and new ones coming up just feel like they're in a different class. And I, I guess we have no way of predicting. It's just really tough to predict if if the Tigris and Euphrates will start running dry and or. If there are some things that can't be handled through whatever we did before, I, I think we just have to make. It, it, it feels like there we have to make certain assumptions or, or uh, operate under a certain level of uncertainty that we just can't tell. That's correct. I mean, there are always these extreme uncertain events. I mean, who knows what will happen over the next months in the Ukraine or whether Putin will decide to go nuclear or. Uh, or who knows what whether the new pandemic comes, something that is as infectious as COVID, but also as deadly as Ebola, uh, then we are in real trouble. And uh, uh, we just can't predict these extreme high impact, low probability events. So that's why uh, 
And we sort of roughly set this 80% range of uncertainty, what is sort of a plausibility range as where the medium variant is sort of business as usual, middle of the road, what we would assume to continue. And then we, we go a bit more to the one extreme and the other, but the very extremes, the very high impact uh, event. I mean, there could be a meteorite uh, hitting the planet and destroying all life on this planet. It's not very likely, but it's not impossible. So we cannot model this in our projection. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense of I really appreciate you explaining this, and I'm sure it's been in all the papers, but the, there's a lot to read in them. Um, let's get to education, because I feel like, the, the, am I right that the, there's men and there's women, and there's teaching education in broadly, and there's family planning specifically? So it feels like there's four different categories there, and I feel like we teach men general education, engineering and finance and things like that, maybe not so much family planning, women probably a mix of both, but I'm not sure. Well, the family planning is a, a complex uh, notion, and we have to define a bit more precisely in the in the UN context. At the moment, it is mostly seen as sort of uh, reproductive health services uh, that is directly only sort of attached to um, helping women get access to contraceptives uh, if they want them. Uh, as, uh, since the Cairo World Population Conference in '84, uh, there has been a very strong emphasis. Uh, on a purely voluntary family planning, that there should not be any demographic targets. Women should not be be forced uh, to do something other than they what they they really want. So that's why the focus is on what is called the unmet need for contraception. That is, women who say that they want do not want to have an additional birth, but still do not use contraception. Evidently, they have some some issues. Some obstacles for using uh, contraception. So that's where the family planning focuses these days. Uh, in, in the earlier years, family planning had much more broadly, it was just advertising smaller families. Uh, I mean, there are like pictures I, I remember still having seen in some developing countries, billboards with an unhappy looking big family with five, six children, and then a, a happy, smart, well-dressed uh, family with only two children. And, and that's conveying that's the way to go that makes you happy so trying to influence uh, the desired family size now it turns out and this is what so many empirical studies over the past decade said uh, that um, for influencing desired family size and uh, what women and couples want it is really the the basic education of women is is just the override of overriding importance it shows that uh, well, typically it's based uh, on, first of all, trying to protect their own health. I mean, if women go to at least some years to school, uh, they typically become at least semi-literate and, and they, they better understand uh, what, uh, what they can do to improve their health. And many pregnancies, one after the other, in, in very unhygienic, unsanitary conditions as we have them in many developing countries, is just a huge health risk for women. There's so high maternal mortality, but also other uh, remaining health issues. So it's in the women's health interest uh, primarily, and then, of course, other interests as well, uh, to have fewer children, uh, and then they also want to have what economists call the quantity-quality trade-off uh, be able to afford a better life for their fewer children. And uh, th this is just shown that whenever women have secondary school, they don't want more than three or four children, whereas the uneducated, illiterate, when you ask them how many they want, they don't even answer you. They say, well, it, this is a stupid question. I have as many children as God gives me, and this is one child every other year. They, it, it's just... It's why uh, the, the famous American demographer, Ansley Cole, uh, put as the, he was at Princeton University at this uh, big global fertility project and also historical European fertility summarized as the, ne the first necessary precondition for a lasting fertility decline is that fertility needs to be within the calculus of conscious choice. You now need to start thinking that this is something that you can influence. And not only, I mean, animals also have their children. As they come, they don't plan how many uh, children they have. And uh, and this is also in traditional societies. I mean, 
people, of course, have uh, sexual activities and, and they get pregnant and they have their children. And this is just part of the human nature. There is no way of limiting. And this limiting uh, family size is really an, a historical innovation at the, at the population level. I mean, there have always been elites already in ancient Rome that tried to avoid pregnancies. But at the population level, this has really started only in the 19th century. In Europe, in some European countries, France was the first, and then around 1900, it, it followed in, in some uh, most other European countries. And this was at a time when there were no modern contraceptives around. Uh, in, in Germany, fertility fell below replacement level already in the 1920s. And this was only on the very primitive methods of abstention or uh, withdrawal, as it's called. So there was no, not even much condom use at that time. How about educating men? Do men? I mean, obviously, women are the limiting, biologically speaking, they're they're going to be the limiting factor. But are, in terms of culture and uh, in that choice, is is there are there efforts to educate men? Is it is it as useful, or does it matter? Yeah, of course, educating men is also very important. But uh, the immediate effect uh, on uh, fertility is less for two reasons. The one I've already mentioned before. Uh, that is the immediate health consequences of repeated uh, unsafe pregnancies. That is something the woman uh, wants to avoid in her self-interest, whereas the man doesn't really uh, suffer this so much. And also the whole burden then of child care is, is mostly uh, on, on, the, on the female shoulders. But there's another one also that in, in conventional societies that do have a lot of pro-natal values, Systems where sort of men are proud of uh, of big families, they want to show off, mm -hmm. they walk out, uh, like they walk, they, they dress up their children, walk to the village, either to the church or the bank or wherever they go. So look how many children I have, and this is even for higher status men. So if men get more educated, they typically make also more income and they have more higher status. And if their norms do not change, uh, they. Uh, actually have more means and, uh, to, to meet their higher status goals associated with larger families. So that's what we call the positive income effect, uh, that if you, if you have more income, you can afford more children. That's why many of the, the Arab sheikhs and so they have uh, dozens and dozens of children with different uh, wives because they want to show off with this. So, um, of course, as men then get better educated, and particularly they have a good partnership with their women, it becomes a more egalitarian couple. The man also starts to worry about how, how the wife feels about this and her health and so on. Uh, then, of course, male, higher male education also helps to bring down uh, the fertility rate. But uh, in, the, in the first instance, the effect on, uh, on, on women through the female education is much stronger than through the men. So we're running out of time, and so I want to. I mean, this is fascinating, and I'm gonna I, I'm gonna listen to this episode many times because you said a lot, and uh, but it feels like in the, in the demography is long. The the biggest effects are long term into the next century. Uh, in the short term, reducing our effect is that's outside demography. Our, our behavior is going to be one of the biggest things. Can we make it through the next couple decades? Uh, and that's going to be something outside demography. But we want to, yeah. educating women especially, but education broadly is going to be one of the most powerful effects in the long term. That's correct. Well, there's one demographic factor that tends to change very short term and that we haven't talked much about yet. That is migration. Oh, yeah. Uh, migration can from one year to another, or even from one month to another, there can be a big influx uh, of migrants, as we have seen it in 2015 in Europe for instance, and that can really change the demographic landscape uh, quite significantly. Like, look at Germany. Like, Germany has been predicted to shrink in its population size already for decades because the uh, birth rates, the number of births have been lower uh, than the uh, the number of deaths and uh, because of low fertility rates. So the official projection said, oh, next year Germany will start to shrink and always unexpectedly more immigrants have come uh, typically not planned immigration, but uh, in Europe we have this uh, sort of asylum seeker phenomenon that, uh, that is not planned. This is of undocumented migration largely, and the German population keeps uh, increasing. And 
So it, this, uh, what you said before about the slow changes, it's true for the other demographic variables, but it's not true for migration. And I guess I also think of the U.S. We we take in a lot of immigrants. There are um, from war and famine and things like that. But we also tend to skim off the top educated of other places, which feels like it's going to drive higher birth rates elsewhere and increase our population. Well, from an economic perspective, it, it's, it's clearly advantageous uh, to uh, take on more educated migrants. We've done a lot of modeling where the Canadian model, for instance, a relatively high number of migrants, but very much selected uh, by education level, uh, is, is, is really an effective way of, sort of counteracting the, the possible economic consequence of population aging, where the labor force would be shrinking. So if you're adding uh, additional people who integrate well in the labor force and uh, who are also rather productive due to their education, that's really good for the economy. And also the more- for the Canadian economy, the Canadian economy, that's right. And also yeah. the, from a Canadian perspective, also these people tend to integrate more educated people, learn the language much faster, they integrate better. Uh, it, you have some countries like Italy, where there's also lots of immigrants, but they tend to be with very low education. They are mostly undocumented. They don't integrate well and they don't really contribute uh, much uh, to the economy of the country. And um, yeah, so these are the, the two patterns of, of migration. And it's a very, very complex story because there's also uh, so much uh, yeah, human rights issues involved uh, in this asylum seeking uh, procedure versus sort of planned migration. Uh, generally, the consensus is that in Europe, we should more move uh, from a sort of short-term reactions uh, to humanitarian crisis-related migrants uh, to uh, opening up avenues of uh, regular uh, planned uh, legal migration uh, that is, is good for the migrants themselves, uh, but also good for the, the labor market in the receiving countries. If we had more time, I would love to jump into the economics of, of growth and degrowth and things like that, but I think that'll have to wait for another conversation. I, I really appreciate your sharing and uh, it clarified a lot. It still leaves, I mean, there's huge uncertainties, but that's the nature of, of predicting the future. Well, and there are, it's an endless story. And it's, as I said, demography is one of the most interesting disciplines because it concerns us, the humans, and uh, in, in a very uh, rapidly changing world. And uh, there are actually, uh, putting all things together, I'm still an optimist, but despite all the crisis we currently observe and, and see and anticipate for the future. I would guess an optimist and a hard worker in not one just accept how things come, but also want to influence it. Do I read that right? That's correct. You have to do something and particularly uh, try to make people smarter to do the right things. Wolfgang Lutz, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.